Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you and to worship you and look at your word. We thank you that you are God Almighty and that you have a great plan for us. We ask you to bless this time as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 16. As we recall, David has been run out of town by Absalom, his son conquering him. Uh, his counselor, Ahithophel, has gone over to uh, Absalom's side, and David sends Hushai with him to, to be his spy. And we look at uh, David on the run. 16, verse 1. And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Meshivasheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, and upon them two hundred loaves of bread, and a hundred bunches of raisins, and a hundred of summer fruits, and a bottle of wine. And the king said unto Ziba, What mean you by these? And Ziba said, The donkeys are for your king's household to sit to ride upon, and the bread and the summer fruit for your young men to eat, and the wine that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said unto, said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abides at Jerusalem, for he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore me to the kingdom of my father. Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, Yours are all that pertains to Meshivasheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech you that I may find grace in your sight, my lord, O king. And when David, and King David came to Behorim, behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came forth and cursed still as he came. And he cast stones at David and all the servants of, of the king, David, and all the people and all the mighty men which were on his right hand and on his left. And thus said Shimei when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloody man, and you man of Beel. And the Lord hath returned on you the blood, all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose stead you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. And behold, you are taken in your mischief because you are a bloody man. All right, so this is David getting, leaving town uh, in a hurry and seeing what goes on. And as he's leaving the top of the hill, and the hill they're talking about is Mount Olive, which is just outside because that's the hill they were climbing when we left him in his last chapter. Uh, he's climbed up Mount Olive. He met Hushai there. He sent him back. And he gets to the top of the hill, and Ziba, the servant of Meshivasheth, shows up. Everybody remember who Meshivasheth is. That's Jonathan's son. Okay, And David has blessed Meshivasheth by bringing him into the palace, feeding him every day, and saying all that your, all that belonged to your father now belongs to you. And he put Meshivasheth in charge of taking care of it. Uh, put uh, Ziba in charge of taking care of it. And Ziba meets David with a gift. And his gift is a pretty good-sized gift, you know, overall. Uh, 200 loaves of uh, bread, 100 bunches of grapes, and, a, and, a bun and 100 summer fruits, and a bottle of wine. Uh, the wine being a bottle of wine, he says, this is for those who are fainting in the wilderness. It's for medicinal purposes. It's not for celebrating. And, and in those days, wine was used, in many cases, as a medicinal 
activity. And one bottle of wine with all of that is definitely medicinal. It's not, <laughs> not enough to even make, huh? Well, again, it's for medicinal purposes. This isn't for them to be oh, part of the feast. Because he says this is for those who faint. Yeah. All right? So like it's just a sip to try to restore them a little bit. Uh, and so he's got this great, great gift. It should help him keep on the road at least for a day, maybe two. We don't, we don't know how great the uh, crowd is. We do know that David's... David's men are with him from, the, from his previous running around, so he's got his warriors, and he's got a huge following. David, uh, when he's, David's on the run, he doesn't have a, he doesn't, he's not looking to hide too much. He ends up with a crowd of people with him, so he's not, not trying to hide too, too hard. And then the king asks Ziba, what, what is all this? And he says, these are the, the breads for your, king, the donkeys are for your king's household to ride on, you know, basically... Your, your wives, your, your whoever, you know, whoever you want that needs to, to ride. And the bread and the summer fruit is for your young men, and, and the wine is for the faint, for those that faint in the wilderness. So he goes, now who is Ziba? Ziba is the uh, caretaker, the servant of uh, Meshivashef, or Jonathan, was Jonathan's servant. He's the head servant in, in charge of Jonathan's uh, things. So he brings a bunch of gifts that should be technically from Meshivashef. And David asks, you know, the question on, you know, well, where's, where, where, where's your master? Where, where is Mishibosheth? And Ziba says he abides in Jerusalem, for he says, for he has said, today the house of Israel shall restore me to the kingdom of my father. Later on in chapter 19, Mishibosheth is going to deny saying this. So we don't know whether Ziba is putting words in his mouth or if he actually said it with the hope that he was going to get the kingdom and then denied it later on. We don't know which of the two are lying because it doesn't really tell us. All right? The scriptures don't really tell us which of the two lied. We either have the lie here from, from Ziba or we have Meshivashef lying later on. I have a feeling it was probably Ziba that, that uh, told the lie. Uh, but that's just my opinion and it's not worth much because there's nothing in the scripture to tell which one was which. Um, but uh, Ziva is, is setting up this stage for him. He's brought this gift. He's, he's telling David that Meshivashef has revolted against him as well. Now, this would be kind of an interesting thing if Meshivashef's done that. Number one, remember, Meshivashef is lame. It's not like he can lead an army, he can't walk. Uh, Absalom is the favorite of the people, so it doesn't seem to me that he would be thinking, all right, here's my chance to get the kingdom. He's already been treated like a prince by David, so the, he is going to lose all the way around if this was him that started this. Uh, but having said that, people do foolish things often. So Meshavishif could have been doing this, and he says, you know, and so David very quickly plays on what Ziba says and says, everything that Meshivashef has is yours. So he confiscates everything that belongs to Meshivashef and gives it to Ziba. All right? And almost, you know, this is done without prayer. This is done without thought. Meshivashef has revolted against me. Fine. You, Meshiv, you know, Ziba, you get, you get all the stuff. 
You know, this is, and he's thinking, you know, this is the way he, you know, he repays me for my kindness. I was being kind to him for his father's sake. I gave him all of his land. I brought him into the, the palace. I took care of him. I, I fed him. I, you know, did all this. And this is what he's done. He rebels against me. And David does not take the time to look into the story and verify the story. He just is rash to judgment. And this is the funny thing about David. David does a lot of things on the spur of the moment, uh, without thinking, without doing. Uh, when he was going after Nabal, Abigail's husband, you know, because he rejected him, he was going to kill him, without thinking, without praying. You know, when David is on fire for God, he's on fire for God, and he's seeking God, and he looks for God. When he's not on fire for God, he goes way off the other direction, but, you know, we do the same thing ourselves. We, you know, we go into prayer, we ask God for direction, and then another time we go off and we do whatever we think is right. Just go out and do it. And this is David. And this, I love watching David because God calls him a man after his own heart. And we know that David wasn't that great a man overall. You know, yes, he had his high points, but he also had some very low points and just gives us the great you know, knowledge that God's grace will cover us. And I love it. I love God's grace. Meshivashef has been treated by God's grace. If he actually did what, what Ziba has said he's done, he has rebelled against grace. If, if Ziba has made a lie, and maybe even flattered, you know, it is possible that he even flattered Meshivashef saying, ah, here's your chance, here's your chance, you can be king again. You know, how easy is it for people to fall for flattery? You know, they hear what they want to hear and just get wrapped up in it. And so this is an interesting point, and it's one that we don't know the answer to. We know that Meshivashev's going to deny it in chapter 19, but we don't know whether it's true, you know, which, which person is telling the truth and which one's lying. And maybe both. <laughs> yeah, maybe both are in, in part of this. Then in verse 5, And when David had come to... Baharim, behold, there was a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah, and he came forth and cursed still as he came. Now, this town, Baharim, is a, is a town in Benjamin between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, it's very important to understand that it is in Benjamin, and why is Benjamin important? Does anybody remember why Benjamin would be important? Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. So this is one of Saul's relatives. It's in their territory. And Saul's family has never, is, is never going to forgive David for becoming king. All right? And that kind of makes sense. You know, David doesn't kill them. Most, most times a new family takes over, they'd go in and kill all the male descendants of the previous king just so nobody would be able to do just what Shimei is going to do. All right? So we're just going to get rid of everybody. And it's kind of funny when we, when we look at this. This man is of the house of Saul. His name is Shimei. He comes and he curses David. And he's throwing stones at David. Now, these aren't the great big stones they use for stoning somebody. These are little rocks and stuff. I mean, they're, obviously, David's, David's not being hurt by these rocks. And he's stopping his men from, they're, they're more of an irritant. And later on, he's going to, so he's, he was throwing powder at them dust and powder. You know, he's, he's just throwing whatever he can find 
he's not going out and, and trying to hurt people. He's being, he's trying to be an irritant. And this is literally what he becomes. Then uh, he casts stones at David and he says, and upon all the mighty men of David, you know, this guy's pretty bold. One man throwing stones at David and at least the 600 men of his, that, that are his warriors. You know, pretty brave uh, at it. And Shimei says, come out, come out, you bloody man, you man of Belial. Belial is an evil, worthless person, a follower of evil. So he is, this man does not have a high opinion of David. All right. He's going, you're worthless, you're, you're, you're bad, you are, you are a bloody man. And you know, it's kind of an interesting statement because in verse 8 we see what he's talking about. He says, the Lord has returned upon you all the blood of the house of Saul. Now, we know the story that David has not killed anybody of the house of Saul. He did not kill Saul. He did not kill Jonathan. He did not kill any of, uh, of the uh, crown princes. The enemy killed them. He did not kill all the male household of Saul when he came into power, which would be normal. He rewards Meshivasheth with, with being in the palace. This guy has made up his own mind that David is responsible. And in his mind, facts don't matter. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of times, that's exactly what happens when we are attacked by somebody or somebody has made up their mind that all Christians are a certain way or, you know, it doesn't matter what the facts say. It doesn't matter at all what the facts say. You know, they want to just go after. And here's Shimei. David, you have, you've killed Saul and his family, and you're, and you're getting your just desserts. And, you know, you can almost picture David going, almost probably feeling sorry for this man. And I've kind of been in that same place sometimes. When somebody attacks all Christians or says really stupid things, all I can think of is how can somebody be so deceived? How can they be so deceived and believe such lies? And yet it happens all the time happens all the time that people go, well, all you Christians, all you guys are judgmental. Well, give us an example of somebody who's being judgmental. Well, you, know, you guys all say there's sin. Well, yeah, that's not being judgmental. That's just saying that God has standards. You know, we're not being judgmental. But, you know, but they'll believe what they want to believe. And Shimei is believing something that is totally false. And David's reaction is... For a man of war, a man of battle, David's reaction to me is, is one of great restraint. David is almost down at this point. He's, not, he's, he's kind of, he's been kicked out of his palace by his son. And this man's cursing him with a bunch of false things. And David is very restrained in his, in his response. And this guy says, you know, the Lord has delivered your kingdom into your hand of Absalom, your son. Behold, you are taken in your mischief because you are a bloody man. Now, God is going to tell, say that David's a bloody man. That's why he doesn't get to build the temple. Not for the same reason Shimei believes. You know, David's got a lot of blood on his hands. He's, and he's got some innocent blood on his hands uh, through his days. And God is going to say, no, you're not going to do it. So on one side, David's looking at what he's saying and going, you know, maybe he's right. I do, I do have some innocent blood. And he's probably thinking back to... Uh, um, Uriah 
and maybe even a couple of other, you know, couple of other times when he, when he you know, struck out without thinking. He's not accepting that he's responsible for Saul, but he's, he's a man of guilty conscience a little bit. He also knows that this is what he deserves. <laughs> you know, Nathan said, your own house is going to rise up against you, and that your wives are going to be laid with in the sunlight where you, where you did it in secret. They're going to be in the broad daylight. So David is going out saying, I deserve this. You know, not knowing, knowing that he doesn't deserve exactly what he's being accused of. But he's also knowing that he is a guilty man. That he knows that he deserves it. And this is sometimes hard for us as Christians. When things happen to us and we go, okay, God, I've confessed my sins. I don't think this is because of my sin, but I know that I am a guilty person and I deserve whatever comes my way. And we need to be careful of that. It's good to be humble in that way, but it's also a dangerous place because it can make us get into depression and self-pity. And David right now is pretty, pretty much in self-pity. And it kind of understood. Just the night before, he's sleeping in the palace, going to sleep in a bed, has a whole army at his disposal. Now he has just a handful of people around him and people cursing him <clears throat> and throwing rocks at him. Yeah. Verse 9. Then said Abishai, the son of Zerai, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse the Lord my, the king? Let me go over, I pray you, and take off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zerai? So let him curse. And because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David, who shall say then, Wherefore hath you done so? And David said unto Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which comes from my bowels, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone and, and let him curse, for the Lord hath bid him to do it. It may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction and that the Lord will requite me of good for his cursing this day. And David and his men went by the way, and Shimei went along the hillside over against him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and cast dust. And the king and all the people that were with him came, came weary and refreshed themselves there. All right. Abishai, one of David's generals, his, his uh, nephew, he decides, okay, king, the king has been insulted. And he does what any man of the king would go. He goes, let me go, let me go take care of him. Uh, I, I will separate his head from his shoulders and he won't be a brother to you anymore. This is why... I'm surprised at David's reaction because this is what David would normally do. You know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, separate him. I think the only thing that really sep uh, saves uh, Shimei is the fact that he is of the line of Saul. If he wasn't of the line of Saul, I think David would have sent him. But David is always determined he's not going to harm Saul's lineage. He was never going to do this. Otherwise, all these guys, this guy would have been dead a long time ago if David had been the normal king and deserving what he's, what's being said. So David says, nope, don't do it. You know, don't do this. He goes, let him curse. And then he says, because the Lord has said unto him, curse David, who shall say, therefore, have you done so? I believe this has more of a question in it. Maybe God has told him to do this, and if that's the case, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to stand out against it. I don't believe that David believed that this was, was ordered, 
I just believe that he was saying, if God is so desiring of this, I'm going to take whatever God sends my way. David, in many ways and many times when he was following God, was very humble, willing to just say, I'm going to wait. Maybe, this, maybe God said, said to him to do this. Why? Again, because he knows he's guilty. He's been chased out. Maybe God is now having him cursed just to test him even further, make him feel even worse. And he's just saying, well, if God's going to do this to me, I'm willing to take it. Maybe he's even thinking back to Job. You know, though God slay me, I, you know, I'm still going to do it. I'll accept bad you know, as well as good. And he's looking at it saying, well, God says I'm cursed. God says it's going to rise up out of my family. Maybe this is all part of my punishment. And he's being very restrained. Very restrained on this. And then he says to Abishai in verse 11, and to all of his servants, Behold, my, my own son, whom I gave birth, is out to kill me. How much more this Benjamite? Okay? Benjamite, the tribe that the previous king, they, you know, my own son is out to get me, and I don't know why he's out to get me. But if, I can understand why the Benjamites are out to get me. Now, he looked at Shimei and said, I understand Shimei's thought process. He's not right. He's not, he's not good. But at least I understand him. Yeah. He's still suffering from his son rebelling against him. And here he's now seeing a Benjamite come against him. And then he says, let him alone. Let him alone. Maybe, maybe God's told him to do this. And he just walks on past. And Shimei gets very bold in verse 13. And he goes, he's walking above them on the hills and the things. And, and he's cursing him. Still, still throwing down curses. And throwing stones, which literally talk about powder. And throwing dust and stones. So everywhere he's going, he's just like picking up handfuls of dirt and throwing them at him. All right? And this is where this one comes out. He's just throwing dirt at him. Throwing dirt at him. It's an insult. He's not out to hurt him. He's just out to irritate and insult. And we would probably be the same way. You know, if somebody was throwing dirt on us from above us, we not being hurt, just being irritated. And David is in misery, running, running from his son. Why did he run from his son, if you remember? Because he did not want Jerusalem to suffer. He didn't want the people to suffer. David is really, truly being a leader, saying, I don't want my people to suffer for my sin and my son's sin. He, because he knew that Jerusalem would split. He knew his son had taken, taken the hearts of the people, but he also knew people were on his side as well and knew that there would be a civil war if he stood his ground. And here's where he trusts God. God will deliver me if I'm to be king still. God will deliver me. If my, king is, my son is to be king, then so be it. But I am not going to start a civil war over this. Just as he was not going to start a civil war when Saul was rejected and he was given the kingdom. David's patience is evident here. And this is why when we live as Christians, we need to hold on to the truth of God and say, God, I am just going to trust you. Whatever comes our way, God, I trust you. Even when it looks bad, God, I trust you. When my whole world falls apart, God, I trust you. You've got a plan. You don't let anything come my way unless you know it's for, for good and you're going to use it for something. 
And knowing that God is sovereign gives us that peace to say, I don't have to attack the person who's attacking me. God is my defender. And this is where it's really important for us to understand. God is our defender. He is sovereign. Nothing comes our way unless he lets it come. And, you know, when I look at Job and Satan had to go ask for permission to attack Job, I truly, absolutely believe that's not a one-time event. I believe that Satan always has to get God's permission, especially to go after his children, but to go after anybody. Now, God grants him a lot of leeway with those that are lost outside of taking their lives. But with the, with the saved, he goes, all right, this is the test. Let's see how they do with the test. And God loves to give us tests. Sometimes I wish he'd give us less tests, but he loves to let our tests come our way and prove us and see how we're going to respond. David, in this particular case, seems to be responding just the way God wanted him to, just with patience. And it says the king and all his people that were with him came, became weary and refreshed themselves there. So here they are being chased, thrown, having stones and powder, thrown, uh, sands thrown at them, getting weary. And, you know, sometimes we do get weary. And it's easy to take our eyes off God and get weary by the, by the problems and the issues going on into our life. And that's part of the test. Will I stay focused on God? Will I stay content with God? Will I doubt his truth or will I believe his word? And this is where it all comes down to. Am I going to stand on the truth that God has given me? Or am I going to believe the lies of Satan because they sound so real and they play so much on the emotions? And the sad thing for us as human beings is how many times do we let our emotions rule in our life? And forget God's word. God says, I've got a plan for you. All things work together for good. God, there's no way this could be good for me. Look how bad it all is. My emotions are saying, it's terrible. I don't know, God. You must have lost your marbles, gone on vacation or something, because no way can this be good for me. And we may not be that, quite that blunt with God, but really isn't that what we're saying when we don't, don't trust him? God, you've lost your marbles. Did you go on vacation? Did you forget me somehow? You know, uh, God, you know, you say all things are together, work together for good, but I don't see how any of this is good. And we kind of get that way with him frequently. And all of our tests are really to say, God, I trust you. I just trust you that this is going to be for good and that you've got a plan. Now, that makes it a lot easier to get through the, through the problems. It doesn't make it 100% easy because our feelings still come raging against us. But this is where it becomes very important for us to set the truth of God against what our emotions tell us. And this is very important. Emotions are not good or bad in, them, in and of themselves, but when we put our trust in our emotions and act on our emotions, they're usually wrong. They're almost always wrong and will cause us problems. We need to stand on the firm foundation of truth, not the sand of emotions. Because we all know one moment we can be mad at somebody and the next moment we can be having a good time and the next moment we're mad and our emotions go up and down and things really haven't changed that much, but emotions go up and down and go back and forth. And we need to be very careful not to build any of our life on emotions. 
We look at God's word and say, God, I'm going to trust your word. And let the emotions just flow back and forth. And, you know, let them go where they want because the emotions are what get us in trouble. Eve looked at the tree and it looked good. And she went with her emotions instead of with the truth that God said, the day you eat that tree, you're going to die. She looked at it and said, boy, it looks good. And this, this uh, talking serpent here said, said it's going to make me wise like God, so maybe he's right and God's wrong. And I don't know if she thought it through that, that, that fully, but that's really what she was saying. The serpent must be right. It, it's here talking to me, and God is, God is, God's not here talking to me, so it, it, the serpent's right. She used her emotions. And we do, when we go the wrong way, it's because we have drifted into our emotions and away from truth. And the sad thing, when we're in our emotions, we think we're dealing with truth. Well, I'm really in love with this person I met three days ago, and we're going to go and get married. We're really infatuated together, and I'm going to get married on that, and then I'm going to find out I I never loved her. Or I never loved them. Because our emotions took over, and we didn't stand in the truth. Or this person saying things that I'm going to re- respond in my emotions and I'm angry and I'm, going to, I'm not going to turn the other cheek like God says. I'm not going to let him be my defender. I'm going to take revenge. And we end up making a me- real huge mess out of it. And it might even be that they didn't say what we thought they said in the first place. Or they were upset and didn't mean what they said. And we responded and, and escalated a war out of the deal because of emotions. We need to be careful about emotion. Emotions will get us in trouble. They are shifting sand and not based on truth. God's word is truth and we need to stand on it. And this is why I hammer home as much as possible. God is sovereign. Nothing happens to us that God did not allow. Now we may wish that God did not allow so much, and I've said that many times. You know, there's times when I go, God, you could allow, you could allow just a few less things to come through, come my way. But I also know that all things work together for good, and I try to get there pretty quick. I'm not perfect like any like everybody else either. So I mean, there's times when I go, God, I just uh, this is just terrible. I don't understand it, and but usually fairly quickly I'm going, okay, God, don't understand it, but you've promised it's for good. And this is important for us to get there. Get to the place where we go, okay, God, you know, I really don't understand why everything's going wrong in my life for the last, last year, God, but uh, you promised us for good, so I can only stand on that. Now, I've never gone through one that long. Job apparently did, you know, at least for several months. But, you know, even if it was, it's worked out for good. Or as uh, Paul said, what is these light afflictions compared to eternity? Now, and his light afflictions weren't light and they weren't short term. He suffered from the time he got saved to the time that he was beheaded. Most of his life he was suffering. Yes, he had times of good, good times. You know, the church was growing, things were growing. And just in the height of the growth, somebody would come along and, and cause a riot and cause them to be chased out of town or thrown into prison were beat, you know. So he had momentarily times, but for the most part, from the time he got saved to the time his head was taken off his head, off his shoulders, he had pretty rough time. And yet he said, these light afflictions are nothing. I am sure there were probably times when he had his little pity party. He was human. 
But you know, for the most time, we can see that he practiced it. In the Philippian jail, after he'd been beaten, scourged, thrown into a dark dungeon, and those dungeons were not nice places. They were full of rats and lice and, and flies and all kinds of stuff. So his back's been ripped open, and he's just thrown in there with no medical care. What do they find him doing? Singing songs at midnight. Probably driving the other prisoners absolutely crazy. Now, midnight of all times, and he's singing praises and hymns to God. So I have a feeling that Paul generally was content with his situation. I know he was human, so there had to have been times when he was, oh, woe is me. And we see that sometimes in his, in his letters where he starts out, all have forsaken me. All I've got left is, is uh, Titus or Timothy. I can't remember, but the, the, that's all I got left. Everybody else is gone. Yeah, he was down a little bit, but yet he was still quickly come back to the joy because he knows that God has a plan. And this is where our true test comes. God will always test us. Do you, do you believe that I'm sovereign? Do you believe I have a plan? Or are you going to moan and groan and gripe about it? Yeah, many times we moan and groan and gripe about it. But the real test is, oh, God, thank you. I don't understand this, but thank you. Can't wait to see how you're going to make this work out for good. Yeah. And that's what Paul could have been doing. In the, in the Philippian jail, bruised back, you know, beat back in the jail that he wasn't supposed to be in in the first place because they never, they charged him, they beat him without finding out that he was a Roman citizen. And God delivers him. You know, God causes an earthquake. He, and then the Philippian jailer gets, gets saved and, they, and he takes care of Paul's injuries, brings him back. And then when the, when the people get ready, you know, the, the leaders say, okay, now go ahead and release those guys. Paul says, uh-uh, I'm not leaving until I get my formal apology. I'm a Roman citizen and they beat me which now makes them totally afraid because they have violated a, a serious law beating a Roman citizen without having gone to court. Now, it wasn't necessarily wrong to beat the Roman citizen, but you had to have the court case first and have the judge say he deserves this beating. You know, they did it wrong. And now they're, gonna, they're going to suffer when Paul says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, and cause them a great panic. Yeah. Saul was, uh, Paul was not afraid to, to stand up for himself. But he also, as all the disciples did, and we've talked about this, they understood that it was better to obey God than, rather than man, but they also understood that they were going to suffer man's punishment for bra violating man's laws. And this is something for us to understand. If we violate a law, knowingly violate a law, because we believe God wants us to obey him, we still have to go through the punishment, whatever that punishment might be is. God does not release us from the punishment of the, of the bad law. He just says, you obeyed me, great, you got the reward. Now you have to go through the punishment, whatever that punishment might be. And the disciples went through that over and over with the beatings they took, the imprisonments they took, the martyrdom they took, because they go, man has the right to punish us even though we're obeying God. Verse 15, and Absalom and the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. And it came to pass when Hushai, this archite, David's friend, was coming to Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, God save the king, God save the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your kindness to your friend, 
Why went you not with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, Nay, but whom the Lord and this people and the men of Israel choose, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom shall I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son, as I have served in your father's presence? So will I in your presence. Absalom comes into Jerusalem with his followers. He has uh, Ahithophel with him. Remember, Ahithophel is David's great counselor. Uh, When he speaks, people listen, and he's wise. And Hushai comes back, and he says, you know, God save the king, God save the king. And Absalom's answer, you can almost picture he's a little hesitant here. You know, is this your kindness or literally faithfulness to your friend? This is how you treat your friend? This is what he's saying. You know, why didn't you go with him? He's a little bit skeptical. Probably correctly so. This is David's other counselor. This is the counselor that he has not had on his side before the rebellion. This is a counselor that is real close and tight with his father, and he shows up at his doorstep. And you can almost picture the little hesitancy. Is this how you treat your friends? Number one, even if this is the way you treat your friends, do I want you to be my friend? Am I looking to make you a counselor? If this is how you you know, treat your friends, you know, and it's kind of like with friends like you who needs enemies type mentality, and it's kind of what he's looking at. All right, you're one of my dad's counselors. You, you're really close to him, which tells us that Hithophel has been on, in on the planning on this all along. And remember, we talked about Hithophel's granddaughter was Bathsheba. All right, so he's a little irritated about all this adultery thing, and, and so he has an ax to grind against David. Hushai doesn't have this axe to grind against David, and yet he shows back up and he says all the right words. You know, hey, the people have chosen you as king, I, I serve the king. If the people have spoken, perhaps God has spoken, I'm going to serve the king and I'm going to serve you. I serve the father, I'll serve the son. He speaks the political language really well. And we think that political correct, correct speech has been something new. Right there it is. Hey, king, you know, God save the king. God let the king rule. rule. Uh, by the way, I'm, I serve the king. Yeah, I served your dad, I, I mean, but I serve the king. He's playing up. He's also playing flattery, flattery to Absalom, which is just what Absalom wants. Absalom was able to play flattery, but I think it was, I really think it was Ahithophel that put the words into his, his mouth to flatter everybody. And here we see Hushai speaking the things that need to be said to become the, a counselor to Absalom as well. All right, he needs to be on the inside. That's what David sent him to be. Be on the inside, and he's speaking all the words he needs to say to flatter, to build up, and just say, hey, I'm, I'm a servant of the king. You're now the king. I'm serving you. You know, never mind the fact that I'm the spy for your father. Never mind that I'm going to go talk to the priest on everything that, that's said in here, but I'm, you know, I'm your servant. Um, and this also shows that Absalom really hasn't got his act together yet because if he really had his act together and his people watching around, he'd have known that Hushai has already talked to David and been sent back. He'd have known that the priest had carried the Ark of the Covenant 
and been sent back. Right? He is a little bit out of his bounds right now. He's, he's starting his kingdom. He's starting to get everything under his feet. You would think that Ahithophel would have been, been there. But even there, there's a chaos going on. Half, half the noble army, the leaders of the army, are now with David. The, the most important ones are with David. They're having to assign new leaders to the army. They're going to have to assign, uh, you know, get their network of, of spies together, <laughs> uh, of snitches, whatever, you want, whatever term you want to use. You know, this is chaos, and, and Hushai has got a great time to come into this chaos. He's not been discovered and won't be discovered. The priests have not been discovered and won't be discovered, even though they had marched out with David or to David and they were sent back. Now, granted, they didn't get very far. They, David, they met David halfway up Mount Olive, and Mount Olive is only is less than a day's journey from Jerusalem because, remember, Jesus in his day stayed in, on, on Mount Olive in Bethany with uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and he would go into Jerusalem in the morning, and he'd come back to Mount Olive and Bethany in the evening. So it's not far. So these people had not gone far out of the city when David sends them back. All right. So it's not like they've been gone all day, you know, days, and then they were sent back. They've just gone out a couple, an hour or two, and were sent back. So they've not long enough in the chaos to be discovered as traitors or potential traitors or spies. All right. Verse 20. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, which he hath left, and keep the house, and all Israel shall hear that you are abhorred of your father. Then shall the hands of all that be with you be, be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, and Absalom went into unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. All right, so Absalom goes, okay, what do we do now? Yeah. You know, David's gone. You know, what's, what's, what's our next step? And he turns to his counselor, you know, Ahithophel. Very wise, very knowledgeable. Uh, he was one, when he spoke, people listened. He was the E.F. Hudden of, the, of his day. All right? I don't know who the famous one now is, but E.F. Hudden was my generation. You know, uh, but you know, this group knows who he, you know. When E.F. Hudden speaks, everyone listens. That was, that was Ahithophel. When Ahithophel opened his mouth, everybody listened to see what he said to do. And he tells him, hey, go sleep with your dad's concubines. And, you know, that way everybody will see that you've totally dishonored dad, your dad. You've taken everything. And this is something that we, we look at and go, well, what's so, you know, this is awful. This is terrible. It was also normal. When a king took over from another king, even the son taking over the father when the father died, they would get the harem of that king. Now, David only left 10, 10 concubines, remember. He, he left 10 of them, and he took the rest of his wives with him. So he left 10, and Absalom's going to do what was basically expected. Remember, when Nathan criticized David, he said, you had all your wives, you had all of King Saul's wives, 
and yet you went after Bathsheba. God would have given you as many women as you wanted, and you went after one that was not available. And here, as, as horrible as it seems, <laughs> and doing it out in the open was the bad part. You know, you know setting up the tent on the roof was the, was the bad part. You know, it, and it was in a tent, so they, it, it, people did not see what was going on, but it was, not, it was very clear what was going on. And who knows what was going on if the lights were in the right positions, you know, who knows what was seen, but they knew that he was taking David's concubines into a tent with a bed in it, knowing that the, the goal was to sleep with him. Whether they saw anything or not, they saw him do this. And this is something that was already forecast in 2 Samuel 12, verses 11 and 12. It would said, your own family is going to rise up against you and your wives are going to be slept with you know, out in the open, in the daylight. You did it in secret, it's going to be done unto them openly. And this is something that is very true even for us. God promises us, if we do not confess our sins and repent, our sins will be declared openly. God is not going to let his children get away with sin. Ever. In, in the long run. If we confess it, put it under the blood, it's fine, it's covered, it's forgiven. But if we don't repent and we think we're keeping it hidden, God will open it up and say, all right, you think it's hidden, you think it's gone, I'm going to shout it out. And we see this with many of these evangelists that have gone into adultery and, and not repented, and God's saying, okay, you're not repenting, here it is, world. <laughs> and I would rather have my repent of my sin and have it forgiven than have God declare it. You know, even to a small part of the world, much less the whole world. And here, all of Israel sees what's done. And all of Israel sees Absalom going in to sleep with David's concubines. And really making it so that there's going to be a problem. You know, David is not going to be happy about this. You know, his, his own wives have been slept with by his son. Uh, that's not going to be a thing. And we're going to see later on that when he does get his kingdom back, he, he never sleeps with those concubines again is what it tells us uh, because they have been defiled in his, his mind. And then we have this little statement at the end on verse 23. And the counsel of Ahithophel which he counseled in those days was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. In other words, when Ahithophel spoke, it was as if he had talked to God himself and that God was speaking. This is how powerful his counsel was. And this is why, whether Absalom wanted to do this or not, he's going to listen to Ahithophel. Ahithophel said it's the wise thing to do. He's going to go do it. Because Ahithophel knows what he's talking about. Ahithophel is extremely wise. Ahithophel is all knowledgeable and, and, and is what he's looking at. And this is, and, and it says, so was the counsel of Ahithophel both with David and with Absalom. Ahithophel's counsel is wise counsel. And we're going to see that David told Hushai, I need you to go back and make Ahithophel's counsel foolishness. This is quite a job. Okay, Hushai is a good counselor. He doesn't have the reputation of, 
Ahithophel. And he's going to have to go in, and we're going to see in the next chapter, he's got to try to make Ahithophel's very wise counsel, and if he'd been listened to, David would have been killed. And Hushai has to keep David Ahithophel's counsel from being listened to. And he really tells him something stupid, and anybody listening to it goes, how could, how could Absalom have ever believed it, and yet God was fighting for David? And this is something that can happen all the time. Wise counsel, wise worldly counsel can look like foolishness if God wants it to be foolishness. And unfortunately, godly counsel oftentimes is looked at as foolish. And this is, I've seen it over and over. You know, well, I really want to marry this person. I know they're not saved, but I think God's telling me, no, God's not telling you. Oh, well, you know, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I really think God's telling me to do it. Two, three years later, oh, I'm miserable. I don't know why I did, you know, why didn't somebody warn me not to do this? Uh, you were warned not to do it. You did it anyway. Now you have to suffer the consequences. And this is the thing that we do so often. We go off doing what we want to do in our own wisdom, our own worldly wisdom. And then who do we blame when it goes all bad? God, how could you have let this happen? Or counselors, how could you have not warned me? And then we tell them, well, we told you. I don't remember. You know, I heard what I wanted to hear back then, and I wasn't listening to anybody's words. Love is blind. Emotions blind us. And we don't listen to anything when we're in the middle. Of, we don't even listen to good godly counsel most of the time. And this is why it's important to get into the word of God. I think the word of God is so important, and I teach it all the time because I feel that if people can get it in their hearts, they're going to make godly decisions more often than ungodly decisions because they're going to start hearing God's word. And I don't, I'm not going to give great counsel. I can tell you what God says about things. And that in and of itself is great counsel. But if you're not going to listen, you're not going to listen. And, but if we can teach it, get it into our hearts, maybe it will come up when we're suffering. Maybe it will come up when we're trying to make our decision. And maybe it will make us make a conscious decision to accept or reject. And this is really what's important. Is enough of God's word in my heart that I truly believe for me to stand on truth? Or am I going to stand on shifting sand? Now the good news is God's test is going to be testing what I know. Not what I should know. I'm going to be careful because sometimes I believe that God will cause us to, if we, if we are skipping church because we don't want to be accountable for it, I think God might say, well, if you were in church, you would have known that, so you're, you're accountable. But most of our tests, we're going to fail them enough for the things that we do know and the things that we think we believe. This is what's really hard when we fail is because we sin against things that we feel like, oh, I didn't, I how in the world did I ever fail that one? I know that God is trustworthy. I know that this is true. And yet, I made the wrong decision. And it always comes down to, am I going to stand on God's truth or my feelings? A rock, Jesus Christ, the rock, or the shifting sands of this world? And, you know, so many times we stand on the shifting sands of this world. Then we have the consequences that follow it, the the uh, remunication upon ourselves where we know we did wrong and we, and we feel guilty 
And that's where we have to repent and then stand back on the truth of God, that if we repent, he covers our sin. And this is the other side of the coin. When we fail when, and we confess our sins, we have to truly, utterly believe that God has forgiven us our sins in spite of what our flesh is telling us, in spite of what the demons and the, and the devil is telling us, that we go, God, you have forgiven our sins, you have put it under the blood of Christ, and it is as far removed as the east is from the west, and you don't remember it anymore, I better not remember it anymore. And the flesh keeps going up. Well, you know, look at this. How could God forgive you? You, you knew better. How, can you, how do you think you could be forgiven? And if that's not enough, Satan comes along and going, you know, you're an awful terrible Christian. What kind of Christian are you? You, know, you knew that you shouldn't do this, and yet you did it. You know, and this is why truth. Whether I'm standing on the truth and not, not falling, or I'm standing on the truth when I've repented and saying I'm forgiven, I am not going to let myself be beat up by the attacks of the flesh and the Satan because God has forgiven. And that is important. David in our story has not really forgiven himself. He just always is thinking, I deserve what I get because of what I've done. He keeps forgetting that Satan is lying to him, that he is forgiven. And this is something that's important for us. Understand we're forgiven and don't keep falling into the pity party. And it's hard I know some people that every year on the anniversary of some big fall of their life, they suffer because they just won't forgive themselves. They suffer because they look at somebody and they feel guilty about the way they treated them. Even though that person's forgiven them and God has forgiven them, they look at that person and go, I just can't forgive myself. And to me, I've said this over and over. If you've prayed and asked God forgiveness and you won't forgive yourself, you have a great problem. You have a great arrogancy that somehow you are you are, have higher standards than God? God can forgive you, but you can't forgive yourself? You know, of all the people to think of, I think it would be the other way around. I would, should be able to forgive myself a whole lot easier than God does. So if God can forgive me, I must forgive myself. Must. Otherwise, I'm placing myself above God. We need to be careful about that. We all do that at various times in our life. God, I know you can forgive them or you can forgive me, but I won't. So God, you know, maybe you're not God. I'm God. <laughs> I'm going I'm to hold my standard. We need to be careful. It's a dangerous place to think and be. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this evening. Lord, help us always to trust you. Help us always to place our life on the solid rock of truth, not on the sand of our emotions and feelings. And we just thank you and ask you to help us in this area. In Jesus' name, amen.